0: Let's turn in our copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter twenty, if you'd like. Appreciate all the scripturally based songs tonight. Second Corinthians five twenty one, that one we just sang that earlier. Angel of the Lord camps around the ones who fear, and that's uh, Psalm thirty four seven, I think, or that whole Psalm thirty four talks about how the Lord watches over His own, how He uh, will slay the wicked, and all of that. So appreciate that. Alex, you choose and? Very scriptural songs tonight. We are now in chapter 20 of Revelation. Last time we were together, we studied chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. We'll do a little bit of a review on that tonight and then move right into our, our new section. We included last time a review and some supplemental scriptures giving us a snapshot of life in the Millennial Kingdom. And as you may have noticed... We have slowed down, as we said last time, a little bit. The nature of the book, of course, is giving us uh, huge sections of time and very few verses, so it takes us a little bit of background time to uh, be able to kind of fill in what we need as far as context goes, so we're able to uh, uh, understand what he's saying to us. And the end of all things, of course, is at hand for us in a very real sense as we watch the things that are going on. So this is relevant and very exciting stuff. I'd like to look, look, if you would, to Revelation 20, verse 7, and uh, I've got a few things I want to add because we had a number of questions last time that will maybe uh, clear up some things for you. Verse 7 says, when uh, the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. A very large number of people are dwelling on the earth by now. The people will be living a long time. Those who came into the millennial kingdom uh, were born again, uh, but their descendants will need to come to faith, obviously. Uh, some of them will not, but there 's a large number of people, and somebody came up at last time and asked me, "Well, how many would there be perhaps in that thousand year time? Well, there are a number of studies out for that first chart i 've got up there is world population since the creation. If you notice about seventy two hundred years ago they 've got uh, Adam uh, created, and then about six thousand years ago they 've got the flood listed, and so we went from almost uh, from their calculations twelve hundred years between uh, creation and the flood, uh, most agree between 1,000 and 1,200, and so that's within uh, that, uh, certainly within uh, allowable amounts. But you see uh, that there could have been upwards to 9 billion people on the face of the earth by the time of the flood. And I don't think most of us think about it in those types of terms, that when the Lord said he, he was going to destroy all mankind, he wasn't talking about just a few people who lived uh, around the Euphrates River. He was talking about a large number of people, and in particular, this, uh, there's a great um, formula for this, and what they do, uh, I won't put the formula up, but basically the formula uh, uh, takes uh, the, the generation, how long the life is, uh, it takes the average number of children, and in this particular uh, formula, it takes two, one boy, one girl, and then the X factor is the average number of generations alive at one time. And so, in general, they've taken these figures, and they're very conservative, so they're basically figuring that there's two people per family, which we know uh, in Old Testament times, particularly after Adam, that was not the case. Uh, and But two people per per uh, family has been the average over world history for population people. So including all the plagues, all the things that have happened, world wars, all the things that have reduced the numbers of people, on average, they figure that it's an average of two per family uh, X is the number of generations alive, and so they can come up with then a general figure about where uh, the population would be. Here's a, here's a better chart, perhaps, that would give us a more of a, an idea of where we would be in, thou- in 1,000 years. So this chart, particularly, is recent history uh, population growth, and you see at 1,000 uh, A.D., you're at uh, about 400 million people. So starting with 400 million people, and that average I just told you, two per family, children per family you can be between one thousand and 2010 at 6.1 billion people so that's a lot of people now if you understand that what we said last time is that it's uh, it, the scripture does indicate long life again for those who come into the millennial rate of Christ so not a short time span not 70 plus years but long as we t- saw in Isaiah as the life of a tree, so are those of my saints. So a long life, plus many generations alive at one time, could easily produce uh, more, in the thousand year reign, more than six billion people, closer, closer probably to nine billion if you think about the same time period uh, during the patriarch's time, or before the patriarch's time, after, uh, between Noah and, uh, and Adam. And so a lot of people on the face of the earth. And so when you think about then, the other uh, scriptures come into play that the Lord will come, he'll rule with the rod of iron from Jerusalem, that the nations will be required to come and to worship yearly. And if they don't do that, plagues uh, like no rain will be on those lands. Also that the Lord will require the saints to rule with them. You realize I'm not just talking again about 100,000 people in, you know, around the Euphrates River. You're talking about billions of people. You're talking about transportation needs that will be very similar to what we have today and probably a lot more efficient, but probably a lot like what we have. So you can see that the world is going to be very similar to how it is now, that the nations will be required to come, that they'll be living across the face of the earth. The Lord's going to heal the waters, and we've looked at that before. And so some neat stuff there, and maybe that just is some food for thought and perhaps will prompt other questions, but because of the number of questions that came out of just the population thing, I wanted to dwell on that just for a minute. So the end of the thousand years are complete. Uh, Satan will be released from his prison. Lots of people now on the face of the earth. At the end of this thousand years, Satan's loosed. He has been bound the whole time, uh, and we're gonna, he's going to come out, and uh, he's going to deceive the nations. Verse 8, you can look there in your copy of God's Word. Uh, Verse 8, chapter 20, he's going to come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So the nations are everywhere. Okay, They've spread out. They're all over the earth, just like they are now. Uh, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, the numbers of them is like the sand of the seashore. So now it makes sense, doesn't it? Because it could easily be just the amount in the insurrection. could easily be as much as the sand of the seashore. Because not everyone, of course, is going to rebel. But here is Christ ruling with the rod of iron in Jerusalem, and you have this, uh, uh, this portion of the people who are, have been born after uh, the tribulation, have come as an ancestor, uh, descendant of those who came alive into the, tri- into the millennial reign of Christ. And we know everyone who came into the millennial reign of Christ was a believer. Because when Christ comes in his glorious appearing at the close of the tribulation, all those who are not believers are slayed by the words of his mouth, by the tongue of his mouth. So anybody who comes into the millennial reign of Christ... They are believers. But their descendants, it appears, will need to come to faith just like, perhaps similar to the way we do, but how amazing it is that Christ himself will be ruling in Jerusalem. Now, it says Gog and Magog. Now, that's a parallel drawn from uh, Jewish history. Jewish people would know this. They would have uh, an exact understanding from Ezekiel 38 and 39, from First Chronicles 5, 4, and Agag, and all of those stories. They would know Gog and Magog. Because that would refer to a leader and his people, Gog and Magog, who came from around the Caspian Sea. In general, it refers to the general enemies of Israel, the enemies of God. And here, that's what it's referring to. What it's referring to is a section of that community, now that has been born in the, tri- in the millennial reign of Christ, the billions of people, a portion of them, will want to rebel. And they'll be waiting for a leader. And Satan, of course, is locked away for a thousand years, but at the close, he's going to be released. These nations are living in this wonderful time. Uh, there are those who have been born then and they will rebel and they're referred to as Gog and Magog like the, the, the enemies of Israel of old. Uh, the leader and the followers and they'll be primed. We were talking about this last uh, Sunday night after we finished the, our uh, time in the Word. Uh, they'll be ready, no doubt. As the thousand years draws to a close there'll be many who will rebel. Uh, and so Satan is loosed. He comes to deceive the nations and some are able to be deceived. And so lots of people Scripture tells us some won't believe, even though he's been reigning in Jerusalem with a rod of iron. It's not surprising, as we commented last time, Adam and Eve rebelled against God while he was in the garden with them. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus rules in Jerusalem and many will rebel. Uh, men didn't recognize Jesus when he came the first time, and when they did recognize him, they put him to death. So it's not, uh, that is the heart of men and women, to, be, uh, to rebel, to turn away. Uh, there are people who came to church this morning and perhaps sit in these services right now, who have heard of Christ many times and still have not turned from their sins. So, it is the heart of men to be this way. So, Satan, along with those who rebel, desire a final confrontation with God. They are already rebellious. They are ripe for a leader. They get one, perhaps in Satan or someone that he uh, empowers to lead them. Now, let's look at verse 9. And if you thought the glorious appearing with a quick battle, this is a lot shorter. Verse 9, they came up on the broad plain. Remember, Jerusalem itself is raised up. Scripture tells us everything else is leveled out. If you looked at the topography of of, uh, Jerusalem now, that is not how it is now, but it will be how it will be. So they come on this broad plain of the earth, they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So we close out the thousand year reign with this uh, uh, number of people who are uh, turning away from the Lord, will not submit to our master. And so they come and they are led into battle against a beloved city and the saints. And uh, they are just devoured from heaven by fire. That's it. No battle, no patience, no long-suffering, just judgment. Verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus knows what the plans are. It's not a surprise to him that this is going on. Satan's thrown into the lake of fire where the Antichrist and the false prophet still are. So they've been there a thousand years already. They haven't been consumed or annihilated. Uh, They remain there, tormented day and night without end. Now, look at verse 11, if you would. Let's move into our new stuff for today. Then I saw, it says, a great white throne and him who sat upon it. Let's stop right there final rebellion is quashed. There's no more. Now John sees the settling of all the accounts. Uh, But as the throne comes into view, verse 11 says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Let's stop right there. And as we think about this throne coming into view and one sitting on it, I I like to think of it as that the veil that separates what's always been but we could never see is gone. The Lord ruling... The Lord in charge, people answering to him, a throne, and all those things that John has seen all along as we've worked our way through Revelation, everyone is going to see. That veil that separates that is open now. The throne of God appears. We know from Romans 8 that Jesus does the judging, so he is sitting on the throne, and uh, then we read from the presence whose presence the earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them, and so Uh, the scriptures lend itself to a decreation, an unmaking. And that's the first hint we get of that right here as we work our way through the book of Revelation. Uh, Scripture says that the Lord is going to decreate. He's going to unmake everything that's been made. That's the idea. The presence of earth and heaven fled away. God spoke a word and made everything that there is. And he speaks another word and it's going to disappear. And the word is actually taken flight. And so the... uh, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, so it's taken flight, that's the word, with no place to land, so it disappears in the sense of the the word fled away. And then the reinforcing comment that follows it, no place was found, so it's gone for good. It's taken away, gone for good. um, So just really amazing things. And you see the word heaven, uh, and once again, uh, that perhaps could be referring to uh, our atmosphere, our sky, it's usually the word that's referred to as tempest, where the tempests roll, where the wind is and all the clouds. But as we move on to parallel uh, scriptures that talk about this, it uses the word heavens and as it's referring to multiple heavens, because in the scriptures we have at least three we know that are talked about. The air that we breathe, the sky that's above us that would include our clouds and all that, and the heavens further out which would include uh, all the stars and all the expanse of the universe. And so. Uh, sec- particularly, Second Peter chapter three talks about uh, this same time, uh, so we can kind of get a a, a, a a parallel or some foundation to stand on. Second Peter three ten. If you want to turn there, hold your finger here, and we'll look at Second Peter three ten. Peter lends to us some understanding of this day, uh, this decreation, if you would. Second Peter three verse ten. And here's where it's the plural of Oranos, the heavens. All the heavens, perhaps, are destroyed. Uh, perhaps just the ones that are around our atmosphere. And, and remember that, you know, as we've worked our way through the judgments, many of the heavenly bodies, uh, things that we see, have fallen to the earth. So, uh, perhaps the Lord recreates all of it. Perhaps it's just what's around the earth itself. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens, there it is, plural, will pass away with a roar and the elements... The uh, stoikion, that's that's an interesting word right there. The elements, that's, uh, that's the, the base of things, the order of things. So it's a, that's an interesting word. The most basic of everything, everything that holds things in place, will be destroyed. Elemental, if you want to think about it that way. But uh, the base of things, the orderly arrangement of things, that's how Scripture uses that word, uh, will be destroyed with an intense heat. The earth and its works. So everything that's contained on the earth, everything that was put on the earth, anything that was built, all the systems that the Lord built into the earth, uh, you know, the water system, hydraulic cycle, all the things that we know about that work and work like they're supposed to, uh, Scripture said these are going to be destroyed in this way, uh, will be burned up. Verse 11 of Second Peter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And that really puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? Get, and I, I always pause right here because it always strikes me so profoundly when I think about how I, we work our life to do certain things and we take joy in things and we build things and whatever it is, and those things are not bad because you know, the Lord has said he's given us richly all things to enjoy. Those are not bad things. But in perspective, what kind of person should I be when I know that everything that I've created, everything that anyone else has put together or spent time on will all be destroyed completely, all right down to the basics of everything, And so, Peter asks an obvious question. uh, What kind of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Obviously, not wrapped up in things that are going to be toast. Okay. And so, it always stirs my heart when I look at that. Verse 12, "...looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God." So, we're not hanging on to things. We're looking for this coming day, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning." and the elements will melt with intense heat. Just repeated what's exactly going to happen to everything that is here that we know. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we're looking for, and this is so sweet, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the Lord's going to decreate, but he's going to recreate too. And that's a sweet thing. We're going to see this as we move on in Revelation. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, uh, basically the same idea. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. It's always been understood that that was the case. Uh, both these passages among dozens of others really foretell the end of the earth and the heavens as we know them will be by fire, not water, right? Because he did that once already and, and the rainbow promises that won't happen again, but he will use fire to destroy These are other references. We won't take time because of our time uh, that's left to look at them, but those are some of the passages that deal with the heaven and earth passing away by fire. Now, Remember, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. This is not for you and for me. Okay? This is wrath on the earth. This is wrath on unbelievers. It's not wrath for those whose sins have been taken away in Christ. All right? The universe, we know it is gone. All believers have been delivered from this judgment by Jesus. They're inhabiting glorified bodies. They're with the Lord in heaven. Uh, we just assume that's the case because we're ever to be with the Lord, wherever he is, that's where we'll be. And he's on a throne in heaven, and so that's where we'll be. And John says he sees the only ones who still haven't been dealt with. And beloved, this is the second resurrection. This is what we talked about uh, two weeks ago. The second resurrection. The judgment for which the gospel was sent. This is that judgment. Uh, the one judgment for which Jesus substituted himself for all who believe. That's this judgment that we're about to look at. Verse 12, if you want to look there, uh, Revelation chapter 20. You can sit back there if you'd like. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And so, the unbelieving dead are raised in this resurrection. They are raised from wherever they are. Any unbeliever who's ever lived from all time uh, now are resurrected. They're the only ones who haven't received their resurrected body. Everyone else, we saw that at the first resurrection. They've all received theirs. Old Testament saints, uh, New Testament church... Uh, tribulation martyrs, they've all received their glorified bodies and they're doing the jobs for which the Lord has prescribed for them. These are the only ones that are left. Now, Remember, everyone who's ever lived will get a resurrected body without any exception. There's only two categories then. There's the first resurrection or the second. The first one are those who were redeemed. The second one is for those who were not. And this is the second. Okay? resurrection of the damned, or the resurrection of the unjust, or the second resurrection, all referring to the same thing. The earth and the heaven, uh, once again, that's the word uh, Oranos, the vault of the sky lightly, the atmosphere around us possibly. Uh, it, we know that it, fly, it, it flees away, and they're all standing before the throne. Uh, and this is, a, this is a, a very terrible day for the unjust. It's been warned of its coming dozens and dozens of times, Matthew chapter 10. Because of time, I was going to have you turn to some of these. Um, you, you're more than welcome to uh, look there. I'm going to read them to you just for time's sake. We're at 7.30 right now. Uh, Matthew 10.15. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. As Jesus is witnessing and working His way through uh, Palestine, He, he uh, refers to this day of judgment. Matthew 11.22-24. through 24, Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven. You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles that had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So, once again, day of judgment, constant theme in the Scripture. Uh, Jesus came for this very purpose, Matthew 12:36. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they should give an accounting for it in the day of judgment, even down to the words the ungodly speak. Okay, uh, All take into account. Everything is all written down. Matthew twelve forty one. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Isn't that amazing? And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Once again, judgment always out there if you do not accept uh, what the Lord has given. Luke 10.14, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre. Again, uh, John uh, 12.48, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of an overview to realize that it is redundantly spoken of in the Scriptures, so much so that sometimes we just don't see it that is referring to a day of judgment that stood out in the future. John gets to see that day that's already fixed in the future for us, uh, remains there. Uh, John 12, 48, uh, Acts 17, 31. He is fixed today, as Paul is lecturing a Mars Hill, He says he's fixed today, which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed. That man is, of course, Jesus, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There will be judgment. Acts 24, 25, But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened. Paul's witnessing; he's telling him what's going to happen as a result of of sin. And uh, Romans two five. I'm going a little faster, so I'll I'll put it up there so you can copy it down and look at it yourself. But because of your stubbornness, unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans two five. That stands out there, and the Lord allows wrath to continue. it's, it's expressed in ever-increasing sinfulness right now, but at the end there will be a judgment day fixed. Uh, Romans 2.16, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So not just the words, the secrets, all the things that are in the heart of all unbelievers will be exposed. Uh, Hebrews 9.7, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes the judgment. Second Peter 29 nine. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows, knows how to do both of those things. They keep the godly and he keeps the ungodly for judgment. Uh, 2 Peter 3.7 uh, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being preserved reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Jude chapter 6, Jude verse 6 rather, The angel who did not keep their own domain, but a man in the proper abode, he's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. This is the great day. This is the one that Scripture has warned of over and over. And God is always fair because he always looks at all the evidence. Now look back, if you would, uh, Revelation chapter 20. The books were opened, it says, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So the Lord has taken uh, note of all of what the unrighteous have done. Everything that's ever been said, everything that's ever been thought, all of those things. We've seen in Romans, you know, deeds provide the foundation for judgment, right? Right? For the righteous and for the unrighteous, because the activity of the righteous is righteous deeds, and the activity of the unrighteous is unrighteous deeds. It's not that you uh, receive salvation because of righteous deeds, nor judgment because of unrighteous deeds. It just just displays what's going on in the heart. And here's the same. Uh, And these are the books that have recorded every thought, every word, every action, every motive, are all written down. The Lord keeps track of all those things. Remember in Malachi? It just popped into my mind. Malachi, remember, uh, as they've returned from the captivity, there's a, a section of the community they are doing the very same thing which took the previous uh, generations into captivity. You remember this? And the people begin to be worried and so they say, you know, some of them are not. Some of them are a remnant and they're not doing the wicked things before. And the Lord says there would be a book of remembrance written. The Lord knows. He, doesn't, he keeps track of all of this. He understands the righteous and He understands the wicked and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't mix them up. He doesn't deal with the wicked like he deals with the righteous and vice versa. And God is everywhere at all times. He's omnipresent. He knows everything. He's omniscient. And so he's written all of this down. It's men and women that forget. right? And Jesus will be able to judge in righteousness and true judgment because uh, these infallible recordings of everything that's ever gone on. Verse 13, if you'd look there, would you? And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the, de- the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their, once again, to their deeds. So every place where the dead have been kept, where those bodies have gone, along with every body that's perished anywhere at any time, okay? so the, the uh, spirit of the dead have been in hell waiting for this judgment. The bodies of the dead have been wherever they are, but they'll all be resurrected. They'll be put back together, given a body that will last for eternity. And unfortunately, it'll be for eternity in torment. As the redeemed are given a body that will last for eternity, to enjoy the Lord forever, to worship Him and glorify Him, and learn from Him, and all the richness that God has prepared for the righteous, uh, which He's offered that righteousness in exchange. Uh, he's given that from Christ gave that righteousness and took our sinfulness. So uh, that was the cost He bore it Himself. But He has uh, He will put together uh, the bodies back together wherever they were in the sea. It says and Hades gave back the dead which were in them. Uh, And they were judged, everyone according to their deeds. It's repeated here again, each man judged, uh, which indicates differing differing levels of punishment, so uh, certain deeds punished at certain levels, and we see that all the way through Scripture. Romans 2 gave us that indication as well, as well as a number of Jesus' parables, beaten with many or few lashes. All of that uh, just lets us know that the Lord judges absolutely justly and fairly according to deeds. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades... And remember, as it, speaks of, it speaks that way. Death in Hades. Death is you know, the physical uh, confirmation of their spiritual condition. And Hades is they're still dead, of course, and so that tells you they were there for the second resurrection. And Hades, which was just their place of torment for their spiritual bodies, as heaven was a place of enjoyment for the believer when they died, as they are waiting for their physical body, which 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about. Uh, these folks, they're, they're, uh, they have been punished in hell waiting for this day. And so... The death in Hades. So it's speaking to those who are not part of the first resurrection and their location. So death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. We talked about the first death. We talked about now the second death. And sinners of every era, every spiritual plane, they're all there together. Uh, they've joined the false prophet. They've joined the Antichrist and Satan. And they are there forever and ever. Verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Obviously, at this judgment, no one's name is going to be found in the Lamb's book of life. But that just, once again, it's the Lord, I think, kind of backing into a pleading. Listen, your name can be in the Lamb's book of life. I've already purchased that for you, and it's available to you. But there will be no one there in this second resurrection. This is the resurrection of the damned, of, of the unjust. And so there's no one written in that uh, book of Life. They're thrown into the lake of fire. Very simple statement. Here again, as we see in Scripture over and over, two categories of people. Okay. Uh, how do you make sure your name's in the Book of Life? You come by faith through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, repenting of your sin. So those found in the names found in the Lamb's Book of Life, and those names who are not. Two categories again, and that is the end of the thousand-year kingdom. Next time, all things are going to be made new. That's what we're going to start with as we begin our time of teaching uh, next month. Next Sunday night, of course, is Acts 246, our planned uh, fellowship time. And once again, we will be having a Q&A uh, for you if you'd like it, if it's helpful for you. If you've been reading in your uh, copy of God's Word and you've got some questions you've uh, been thinking about, just kind of jot those down. You can text them to me, email them to me, write them down on a note, give them to me, and we'll try to put those together. We will try to get to some from the floor. Uh, on that night, but it's helpful too to have them. If you know what it is already, go ahead and give them to me. It'll help me correlate uh, them and to combine some of them. Will be similar, so I'd love to do that if that's helpful for you. Okay, let's uh, let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Can we do that? Eli, would you close us in a prayer?